breaking news. In a major escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Iran, the top Iranian general has been killed in an airstrike while leaving the Baghdad airport. The Pentagon confirmed the U.S. military carried out the attack. Qasem Soleimani was one of the most powerful figures in the Middle East and had been the top military man in Iran for more than 20 years. This attack comes after Iranian-backed groups breached the U.S. embassy in Baghdad just two days ago. We now turn to ABC's Kara Phillips, who's with President Trump in West Palm Beach, Florida. Kara. When reports of the airstrike at the Baghdad airport broke tonight, there was one question on everyone's mind. Was the United States responsible? Well, the president was cryptic. He responded with only a picture, tweeting out the image of the American flag. Breaking news just minutes ago from Iran, what the military there is now admitting about that downed Ukrainian plane. Good evening, Leland. Evening, Shannon, to you. And we're learning a lot more about that operation from the beginning to the end that resulted in the death of Qasem Soleimani. It went far beyond a drone strike and included U.S. Army Special Operations soldiers on the ground that actually followed his convoy. Half a mile behind when the missile from the Reaper drone hit, they were on the scene within a minute or two. Immediately following the drone strike, they did what in the business is called a bomb damage assessment and took pictures of the scene, along with confirming that the drone got the right car and Soleimani was dead. Many of the pictures we have obtained include graphic and close-up pictures of the Iranian general's body. We're not going to show you those tonight. They're simply too gruesome. He is missing limbs and is grossly disfigured. A source who both served in Iraq and saw the pictures noted that Soleimani died in much the same way the Americans he killed died. to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this podcast, and we're going to discuss something that's been very big in the news uh, recently. I have uh, Washington Bureau Chief of the Kuwaiti Daily, Hussein Abdul Hussein. How's it going, brother? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, so, you know, we're here to discuss the situation with uh, the killing of Soleimani and the events that have been taking place since then. Uh, you obviously have a, a unique perspective on this when, you know, compared to the mainstream media uh, here in the United States. Um, so before we jump into all that, can we talk about your background a little bit? And if you can just kind of tell us your story up until where you're at now. Okay. Um, I, uh, my uh, dad is from Iraq. My uh, mom is from Lebanon. I grew up partially in Iraq and uh, mainly in Lebanon. I went to college there, worked at a daily newspaper. Uh, before I was recruited here to the U.S., I worked at a Congress-funded uh, Arabic TV for a few years. And then um, I uh, took on the job that I still have now, which is uh, running the uh, Bureau of uh, Kuwaiti Daily. 
So uh, that's in a nutshell. I've, I've been working in the uh, foreign policy industry, or let's say the Middle East industry, for over 20 years now. Okay, awesome. Okay, so Qasem Soleimani, um, it's a name that, you know, if I had the wager, I would say up until he was killed, most Americans didn't know who he was. Um, obviously, to people working in government, uh, journalists who cover the Middle East, and certainly to Iraqis and Iranians, he's well known. Um, I was actually sleeping when the news first broke uh, that he was killed. So when I woke up and I saw the headlines, my first reaction was like, literally, holy shit, like we just threw a haymaker at Iran. Um, what was your initial reaction? Uh, well, of course, it was big news. Uh, but my reaction was unlike um, many in the U.S. who thought uh, we're on, uh, uh, on a roller coaster toward a, a war, a full scale war with Iran. Right. Um, I, um, even though I'm, I'm a registered Democrat, I vote and donate to Democrats, including President Obama. Uh, I disagreed with his nuclear deal, even when he was in office and uh, had a few uh, heated uh, arguments and discussions with his people at uh, various think tanks in Washington. Uh, I think uh, the, the, the nuclear deal with Iran had a basic structural flaw. And this was because uh, Iran is two things. Uh, Iran tries to become a nuclear power, and at the same time, Iran uh, is expanding in the region uh, using uh, terrorism and violence and undermining governments uh, in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen mainly. Uh, and this is bad for the Middle East, and it's bad for world peace at large. Uh, the way President Obama designed the nuclear deal was to separate between the two. We got the Iranians to uh, freeze or give up or whatever, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, the Iranians uh, gave up or froze their nuclear deal. And in return, sanctions uh, were removed. And that gave the Iranians access to uh, tens of billions of dollars. Uh, without any agreement over their destabilizing activity. And by the way, this is a phrase that President Obama uh, used repeatedly. Uh, so they got the money and they spent the money on their militias and they spent the money on more violence. So the Middle East started uh, shaking further and further. Uh, with President Trump, I think it was smart to uh, uh, quit on a deal, just leave it um, and go after the Iranian money so that. Uh, if we starve the Iranian treasury, then we can make sure that they're not getting money to fund their violence. And finally, it was good from my perspective. From my thinking was was it was good that uh, President Trump crossed that imaginary red line that we are scared of the Iranians uh, by killing Qasem Soleimani. Uh, we sent a message. I think the Iranians got the message that uh, you cannot get away with killing U.S. soldiers. Uh, that restored deterrence with the Iranians, and I think from now until or until further notice, I think the Iranians will steer clear of going after our men and women in uniform overseas. Yeah, I think like yourself, initially I thought, wow, you know, this could certainly lead to a larger conflict in the Middle East. Um, but after 
you know, after a couple of days, I quickly came to realize this wasn't going to be the case. Um, the way that I took notice of you uh, was you had a different perspective on this situation than that of the mainstream media, uh, some of which you just alluded to. What were some of the first misrepresentations of the situation that you've noticed coming from the mainstream media? Uh, well, look, I uh, I just told you that I disagreed with President Obama, Obama's pres- uh, uh, perspective, his, his view of Iran. The, the only thing that I agreed with him was that he understood that the Iranians, the Iranian regime uh, was never suicidal, that right. it calculated things carefully. Um, so this is how, if, if you've been someone who has been uh, involved or covering or writing about uh, the Middle East for some time, you would know that a regime like Iran expands when it senses that Washington is busy or when Washington shows weakness and folds when they think that we are flexing our muscles. And this is exactly what happened. And that's why I was almost certain that the Iranians uh, will not escalate to full-scale war. And certainty started increasing when we saw that the Iranians were trying to impress on their uh, allies in Iraq to um, to pretend that the Iraqi government wants to eject us from from Iraq. Now we know that the Iraqi government uh, lives off of oil revenue. Like 100% depends on oil revenue. Iraq is one of the top five exporters of oil. And this three million barrel a day, all the dollars that they get, that's how they spend on themselves and their people. That's how they feed their people. So the Iraqis understand that they don't want to uh, uh, follow the Iranians all the way down the sanctions road. Uh, And as such, uh, parliament could not even get a quorum to vote uh, on the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq. Uh, so what happened was that they got the main or the uh, closest allies of Iran voted on a um, non-binding resolution. Now, if you uh, read Arabic or understand Arabic, you will see that all the statements that were put out by the prime, my, pr- prime minister of Iraq, Adil Abdel Mahdi, all the statements, they never say we demand U.S. troop withdrawal. They dance around the subject and they uh, try to impress that this is their wish, but they always use words like timetable, mechanism, agreeing on a mechanism, discussing the vision or the view going forward. There's, there hasn't been a single statement from any Iraqi official that specifically said that we want U.S. troops to leave Iraq. And we knew this, and we knew that the Iranians will try to spin this, and this is exactly what they did. They impressed on their allies to go to parliament, try to pretend as if this was a, a binding legislation, and then their media hyped this up in such a way. Uh, unfortunately, our media did not verify any of this. They just um, uh, took whatever the Iranians put out on their media, and they made it sound as if the Iraqis were changing course which never happened. And um, after our media picked it up, then it became an established fact. And that was what provoked me and prompted me to try to explain this over social media, just to say, listen, whatever you see is not happening. What's happening is actually this. And I started translating pieces and excerpts from um, Iraqi and Iranian Arabic media just to prove my point. 
Yes, from what I understand, um, a lot of Curtis and Sunni lawmakers didn't even show up for these votes. Uh, that's correct. And uh, to put things in perspective, if we think that uh, killing Soleimani, like uh, many pundits uh, in the U.S. Uh, argued, if killing Soleimani isolated the U.S., uh, in fact, it isolated Iran because it showed that the only friends that the Iranians have inside Iraq was the Shia, and not not all the Shia, uh, just a, a, a part part of the Shia bloc. Uh, we know that the Sunnis and the Kurds picked America's side over Iran. And then if you look uh, at the Shia, you will see that the Shia bloc is split into two. Uh, you have Shia politicians who have militias uh, that are uh, pro-Iran, and then you have Shia politicians who don't have militias, including the prime minister. The Shia uh, politicians without militias are scared. Uh, they think that in case U.S. troops leave Iraq, they'll be very vulnerable to the politicians with militias. Then, you know, the, the guys with the militias can beat the guys without the militias. So even within the Shia bloc, uh, the Shia without militias were arguing in such a way just to... Uh, not to utter the word that we want America out because they understood that, their, it, it, that the stakes were high for them. Uh, so if you understand the situation, you will think that Iran was, was desperate, Iran was isolated. Uh, we outmuscled Iran in Iraq. We outmaneuvered them politically. Uh, the majority of Iraqis chose us. The majority of Iraqis went out to the street. Uh, they burned down uh, a few... Um, uh, Iranian consulates, one in Basra, the other one, uh, they, they, they attacked other other Iranian targets across Iraq. So if you if you look uh, more carefully, you will see a different scene than the one that's being presented to us here in the United States, uh, with a with a sole purpose of saying that uh, the the silver bullet for us for our dealing with Iran is restoring the nuclear deal. I think the nuclear deal is long gone now, even the Europeans today, I heard, are trying to uh, to scrap it. So, you know, it's 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 uh, it's overdue for us to start thinking of new ways of how to deal with the Iranian regime. Yes, I think if you look back, you know, at the last 40 years or so, uh, the way that the U.S. has dealt with Iran has always almost been on the terms of the Iranians. Um I think what President Trump is doing now, especially with the killing of Soleimani, is negotiating from a position of power versus letting them have, you know, all the chips, so to speak. Um, and I think even if you don't necessarily agree with Trump's positions on other matters, I think he's on the ball with this one. Uh, I, I, uh, yes, uh, that's correct. I do agree with President Trump um, and his uh, policy uh, over Iran. Um, I think uh, Trump's Iran policy is much better than uh, the way that his administration and his officials are trying to, to defend it. And I think they have, uh, they're standing on a much uh, stronger ground than they seem. And because, you know, uh, there was no uh, reason why they shouldn't engage, why they should have engaged in an argument uh, over whether uh, Soleimani's threat was, uh, eminent to uh, our troops or not. Um, right. I think it should uh, go without saying that if you spill American blood, 
we will come after you and we will find you. And this is very important uh, for the future safety of our troops. Uh, and this argument should have been enough uh, to make. Uh, plus, uh, the, the legal argument uh, is, is on, on uh, President Trump's side uh, because this was not an Iranian government official who was killed inside Iran. This was an Iranian general uh, killed outside his country. The question is, what was an Iranian general doing in Iraq where he's not an official and where our troops are based? And if you think about that, uh, the only uh, uh, possible reason would be to instigate Iraqi militias to go after our troops. And they already did uh, one run, which killed uh, one U.S. contractor. Uh, and um, everyone believes that there were more, more runs to come uh, uh, commanded by Soleimani. Uh, I think if uh, uh, President Trump's administration had said this uh, publicly, this, would, this should have sufficed and this should have ended the conversation. Um, but, I, you know, I, I haven't heard such a reasoning put together. So far, we've, we've heard all kinds of, of reasoning. But in, in essence, I do think that uh, uh, President Trump crossing the imaginary red line that Iran has drawn. Iran has, has depicted itself as, a, as, a, as an up-and-coming power and has convinced everyone that America is a paper tiger. America is a spent force. America is looking, is is running and looking for the exit, and that's not true. We just showed, you know, even the a guy as big as Soleimani in the region and Iran, we can just take him out with a drone and, you know, and uh, and face the consequences. So, uh, so this, you know, uh, I'm not a, uh, I've never been in the military, but I think half of war is is just impressions, and you know, and absolutely. And, uh, and if we show weakness and, you know, if we drop our guard and, and project the, the image that the Iranians are much stronger than us, uh, uh, that will probably cost us even more wars and money and, and blood going forward. Right. It's a, a lot of it is very much perception. And um, I actually agree with you 100 percent on the fact that, um, you know, within the U.S., opponents of the president and his administration are going after the reasons for killing Soleimani, whether that's legally or, you know, is was this the right move kind of thing. Um, I agree that I don't even think it matters to say, oh, there were strikes imminent and that's why we killed him. I think in, in the grand scheme of things, killing him completely threw the Iranians off and um, they were not expecting it. I think even a few days before his killing, uh, I forget one of the high-ranking officials on Twitter saying that, you know, Trump's threats are, are meaningless and uh, things like that. And um, and I agree, just in the, the larger picture and strategy, this shows them that the U.S. is not going to be pushed around and, um, you know, let them negotiate on their terms while they're conducting essentially terrorism uh, all throughout the Middle East and, like you said before, killing American troops. Absolutely. And... Uh uh, I think, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I regret that Democrats are practicing, and I guess maybe Republicans do this when, when, they, when they don't have the White House, but this is a different right. story. But uh, the way uh, Democrats are arguing is that uh, uh, the opposite of whatever the administration does. So when President Trump withdrew, withdrew the troops from the Kurdish areas in Syria, 
they went nuts over that, and they, they, you know, they said we're abandoning our Kurdish allies. Then when President Troop engaged in, you know, by killing Soleimani in Iraq, they said, oh, uh, how come the troops are still in Iraq? So if you try to understand their strategy, it will look as if they want us to uh, withdraw from Iraq and stay in Syria, which anyway doesn't make sense because our existence in Syria is connected to the mandate that we have from the Iraqi government to station troops, because otherwise there's Syria will be landlocked to us. There's no way for our troops to help the Kurds unless we can supply them from the bases that are in Iraq. Uh, so if you add up what, what, the, what the Democrats are asking for, they clearly uh, don't have a strategy, and they're, they're projecting this um, onto uh, President Trump. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that President Trump necessarily ha has it all figured out. I don't think anyone uh, does have all things figured out, especially in, in a region as fluid as the Middle East. But I think what we do is that we, we, we take one step and we calculate two or three steps forward. And by this calculus, you know, taking Soleimani out was a great thing. And I think, you know, uh, this is what the Democrats should have understood. And, you know, uh, we heard on, on the media, on mainstream media, that uh, uh, killing Soleimani uh, unified the Iranians uh, around their flag. And I was always thinking, I wish it's unified us around our flag, you know, instead of right. of having many people going after. I mean, the, the minute the minute that our troops were under fire from uh, the missiles that hit them from Iran, uh, Speaker Pelosi tweeted that we cannot afford war. I don't think that was the best thing to tweet because when you know when when our troops are under fire, we say money doesn't matter. We're ready to to sell whatever we have to, you know, arm and defend the boys and, and girls over there. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's regretful, but I think the Democrats made a few statements, took a few positions that I don't think were the wisest or the best. Yeah, and I think that's also a great point you bring up regarding, you know, people saying that this killing of Soleimani unified Iranians around their flag and whenever the U.S. is engaged in any kind of conflict or combat overseas, uh, it should unify Americans. And, and that's a fantastic point. But also, the mainstream media has also been peddling that um, the killing of Soleimani has unified Iranians, but really that's not the case. And um, I mean, going back to November of 2019, uh, you know, according to Reuters, uh, 1,500 Iranians were killed protesting in the streets. Um, you know, they were shot and killed, and uh, maybe some people were picked up in their homes and stuff like that. Uh, but now we're seeing large-scale protests all over Iran. And um, to kind of piggyback on uh, on statements that Pelosi made, she was on, uh, I forget what channel, she was interviewing with some uh, on one of the main uh, media channels, and she almost refused to acknowledge that the Iranian people were upset with the government and were, in fact, taking positions that were essentially siding with the Trump administration. Uh, right. Yeah, that's that's correct. And uh, I, I grew up in Iraq uh, under Saddam. And when we were kids, uh, our teachers would take us out to the streets whenever Saddam had any, you know, uh, wanted any rally. 
Um, and we just uh, we were just uh, taken out to the streets and uh, and cheered and and sang and carried Saddam's uh, pictures. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is because it is impossible in countries, um, autocracies and dictatorships like Iraq under Saddam or, or or like North Korea or like Iran today. It's impossible to gauge public opinion by looking at the rallies and saying, "Hey, look, you know, there are like." 100,000 or 200,000, whatever the number is, and to say, look, these people are showing that they love Soleimani and we should believe them. No, we shouldn't believe them. Uh, the people we should believe are the ones who who were sniped, and, uh, according to news wires. Um, when the Iranians went out to uh, protest the regime in November, and that these were protests against um, uh, the increase in prices for food and oil and basic necessities, um, the the Iranian regime sent its snipers, deployed its snipers over rooftops, and they were targeting hearts and heads of Iranians, and they killed anywhere between 1,500 and 4,000. They shut down the internet for a week, and this yes. was before we took out Soleimani. So to pretend that whatever uh, protest you see in the street, to pretend that this was in support of the regime and in support of, of Soleimani, Anyway, uh, such pretense was completely de debunked uh, as we see pictures coming as we speak uh, from Iran, showing that the Iranians are still out in the street protesting both Soleimani and the rest of the regime. Uh, and this this means that uh, it's it's really, I mean, you know, we have to regret that Speaker Pelosi uh, does not look at Iranians uh, and express support that these brave Iranians are risking their lives by demanding their freedom. I think it's also important to note the, um, immediately after he was killed, there were some articles that were put out by some of the major networks. And I guess they were trying to give some background on Soleimani. And in some of them, it almost made him look like he was some kind of hero. Uh, but just another point to note that, um, you know, he was the head of the Quds Force, right. uh, which is basically a special operations um, unit from Iran or the special operations unit. And they were on scene in November killing Iranians while they were protesting. So people, you know, trying to make it seem like he was some sort of hero. I mean, what, you know, what national hero has his elite soldiers kill the citizens of their country? Yes. And uh, let me make two points here. Uh, first, because we heard this often, and uh, especially from people who oppose who opposed uh, taking him out, who argued that Soleimani was uh, an, uh, an official in a foreign government. Um, I can't really explain the whole Iranian system, but it's uh, it's it's good to keep in mind that uh, in Iran you have the state, and then you have a parallel state that's not really official or in the state. So you have a president whose name is Hassan Rouhani, who's, who's been elected, and you have parliament, and these guys have a regular army called Artesh. Uh, and then you have the supreme leader uh, who's, who's never been elected, who's been in power since 1989. And then you have, this supreme leader has his own militia, which is not part of the regular forces. And this is where Soleimani comes in. Soleimani was part of this militia, and this system of having a state and a parallel state 
is replicated in Lebanon. The Iranians are trying to replicate it in, in Iraq and somehow in Yemen. And they're trying in Syria too, but in Syria it's more complicated. So to think that Soleimani was a government official, and sometimes I heard some people who, who, who said this is the equivalent of the uh, chief of staff and, uh, um, and the defense minister and the foreign minister put together. I don't think this is true. The guy was never, he, he, he was never an official who took orders from an, from an elected government or a sovereign government. Uh, in Iran. Um, so this is one point. The second point that I wanted to make is that, and I think uh, I should tell your audience that whenever you see uh, any correspondent uh, giving information from inside Iran, do not believe them because their very existence in Iran depends on the kind of information they that they put out in our media. So I know that NBC has a correspondent, New York Times has a correspondent, um, a bunch of other mainstream media outlets have correspondents in Iran. And for these people to continue living and working inside Iran, um, they have to have the blessing of the regime, uh, and the regime will never give, give a blessing if anyone gives uh, information uh, that could be used against uh, the regime. Uh, so that's why, you know, uh, uh, Iran could really manage a big portion of the information that made it all the way to the front page of our biggest newspapers and was taken as if this was all true and verified. At the time, most of this was just propaganda that was planted by the Iranian regime in our media outlets. You know, that's a fascinating point that you bring up about Soleimani not really being a government official who takes orders from an elected official in Iran. Um, I always thought it was a little strange, the setup of having a president, but then having the supreme leader whose authority, it seems, supersedes the president. Well, that's, I mean, that's what they call the, uh, uh, the Islamic Republic, I guess. Uh, but this is really an oxymoron because... Uh, the supreme leader, uh, he's, he's supposedly in position as the deputy imam, uh, the 12th Shia imam being in occultation or in hiding since the 8th century. Mm. Uh, and and this, uh, the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, uh, pretends that he's the deputy imam until the second coming of, of the original imam. So, I see. So his rule is not based on the choice of the people, it's based on the choice of the of, of the divine so he's been divinely chosen as a leader and anyone who's underneath him is just you know like Soleimani uh, does not they do not get their authority from any elected um, uh, body well at the same time you have the Iranian state which is much much weaker than Khamenei and Soleimani and the rest of these guys and you know, the, the state has a parliament, an elected parliament, um, when, and the president is an elected president. And these guys, they're not necessarily the best, but they are elected and they are much weaker. And you probably noticed this, but throughout all of this, uh, the role of, of the president of Iran was really weak. You know, he, he didn't give statements, Khamenei did. Uh, the Iranian army didn't put out statements. Even the strike against uh, Ain al-Assad uh, uh, base in Al-Anbar 
came from the IRGC. It did not come from Artesh, the regular army. So we have to keep this in mind because all of this is happening off, off the grid of, of the state of Iran, uh, except for the foreign minister who was tweeting and trying to explain uh, the regime or how the regime is thinking and behaving to us. Uh, but otherwise, you know, I think uh, we're dealing with not an actual state. We're, we're dealing with a combination, uh, a mix of, of a state and non-state. And the biggest proof that this is, non this, this is not a state is that Soleimani was killed in Iraq. And the reason why Soleimani was killed in Iraq is because the supreme leader thinks of himself as the supreme leader of all Shia in the world. His power is not limited to Iran. He thinks he is the king of the Shia in Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, and whatever you can find Shia. And hence, this general was in Iraq. He was not in Iran. So essentially, almost anywhere that there are Shia Muslims throughout the Middle East, there's at some level some sort of uh, Iranian activity there. Um, now, when you say that they're trying to duplicate the system they have in Iran and some of these other places, would that essentially give the supreme leader in Iran power over these other states as well? Like, is that the goal? Uh, well, it, that's exactly right. And uh, Iran pretends as if it is the leader of all the Shia, but it does not necessarily mean that all the Shia follow Iran. So, uh, Iran, the, the supreme leader thinks he is the leader of everyone, but not, not everyone agrees. Um, in Lebanon, Hezbollah is the equivalent of the RGC, and Nasrallah, the chief of Hezbollah, is he's 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 gone on publicly on on the screens, and he's pledged allegiance to Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, even though Nasrallah is Lebanese, he's a Lebanese citizen, he lives in Lebanon, but he's done it time and again in Lebanon. So, uh, and, and this is why when there's any kind of possible confrontation between us and Iran, one of the threats that the Iranians make is that Hezbollah will strike Israel. And the reason right. they can make this threat is because Hezbollah undermines the Lebanese sovereignty just the same way uh, Soleimani undermines the sovereignty of the Iranian government. So Hezbollah acts independently of the Lebanese state. Uh, and it, it controls the Lebanese state just like Khamenei controls or, you know, overpowers the Lebanese state just like Khamenei overpowers. Now, what, what, what the Iranians have been trying to do in, in Iraq is to replicate Hezbollah to get, to get themselves um, a, a militia that's strong. And this has not been happening for them for a few reasons. First of all, because we're still somehow engaged. And by engaged, I don't mean we have troops but we are engaged in terms of diplomacy, in terms of politics. We still value Iraq, which is good, and I think this is the way it should be. And number two is because Iraq has an independent source of income. So the Iraqi government makes 60 to $70 billion every year, and this money makes it harder for the Iranians to control the government of Iraq. As long as the Iraqis are getting their own money, it gives them their own influence. And it makes it harder for the Iranian who are at this point poorer because of President Trump's sanctions on them. It makes it harder for the Iranians to control the Iraqis. So these nuances, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, many uh, in, in Washington uh, who are not in the administration right now were taking into consideration. They were thinking, 
the nuclear deal, the silver bullet, let's go back to 2017 and, and, and things will be great. I don't think, you know, if we, even if we go back to 2017 before we pulled out of, of GCPOA, which is the nuclear deal, I don't think things will be great. Would you say that um, in Iraq, uh, obviously, Soleimani is no longer around, but would you say that their number one guy in Iraq is um, Muqtada al-Sadr? No, I wouldn't say so. Uh, I think uh, maybe we're just lucky or maybe we knew that uh, al-Muhandis with with Soleimani. Uh, Soleimani's equivalent in Iraq was killed with him in that strike. So we took two birds out with, with one missile. Uh, so, uh, so Abu Mahdi Muhandis was, he was the equivalent of Soleimani, and he was sort of Soleimani's deputy in Iraq, the viceroy, if you will. And he was taken out, and I think now they have a replacement whose name is Hadi al-Amiri. And, and this guy was a minister, and he's been to Washington. He's visited the White House under um, Presidents Bush and Obama. So this guy at, at times was was friendlier to the U.S. than he is now. But I hear that Al-Amiri is not really willing to take on this position. He even uh, said that uh, the only way for me to take um, this position is for parliament to vote that, you know, I, I, I should take it. I think he's, it, to me, it looked as if he's trying to uh, put up some hurdles. Um, I think at this point, everyone is scared that if they take this position, you know, we might come after them the way we did with Mohandis. Uh, right. So, uh, so what we have now is a is a bunch of militias, but at this point they're still uh, leaderless. Right. So I'd done a podcast in 2016 with a vice news reporter who had embedded with uh, Iraqi special forces when they were retaking Mosul from ISIS, and one of the things that he said that he believes, uh, and again this was in 2016 that. Once ISIS is officially out of Iraq, there may be more fighting with the Iranian-backed groups and the Sunnis and the Kurds. Um, do you believe that if the U.S. pulls out, um, these Iranian militias would get very aggressive uh, regarding going after Sunnis and Kurds? Well, what, what I believe is that um, even though most Americans, including Republicans, were opposed to it, but the best piece of foreign policy was President Bush's surge of troops, which he ordered almost single-handedly. And I think that surge of troops succeeded and it restored balance between the Shia and the Sunni and the Kurds in Iraq. And violence levels had gone to uh, to levels that, that were not seen prior to 2003. So, so Iraq was stabilized. And I think the biggest mistake that President Obama committed was that he disengaged prematurely and he treated the Shia as if they, are, they were in charge of Iraq. And this made the Shia just expand more than they should have. And this shattered the balance and allowed the comeback for the um, uh, radical Islamists that, that was ISIS. So uh, I think what, what should happen is that with troops or without troops, the United States should remain engaged and uh, should try to impress on the Iraqis to uh, um, stick to the Constitution. And the Constitution, by the way, is federal. So this gives each of, of the Sunnis, the Kurds, and the Shia, it gives them leeway to uh, uh, manage and govern themselves. Uh, this uh, eases the tension, and um, you know it, 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 wouldn't, um, it wouldn't let the Shia go after the Sunnis or, or vice versa. 
had we uh, kept our foot on the gas pedal uh, at the time in 2011, after we withdrew our troops from there, had we remained engaged, I think we uh, we could have you know avoided the comeback of ISIS. But now you know um, we can't cry over spilled milk. I think what what we should do going forward is that just to make sure that now that we've defeated ISIS. The only way is to to make sure that there's a sovereign government, no militias for the Shia. You know, that this is very important. Uh, the, the government have to be sovereign. The constitution has to be respected. Federalism has to be implemented. All the tenets that, we, that the Iraqis agreed on under our auspices, under our sponsorship back 10 years ago, all these things should be restored. And I think we can, we can really go back to... Uh, to 2010, 2011, was when, when Iraq was, was relatively stable and, you know, re- relatively doing okay. So um, you wrote an article for the syndication bureau titled, Iran's reaction to Soleimani's death shows its ability to wage asymmetric war has been blunted. Um, now, I agree with your assessments in the article. Can you talk about some about um, why you think that is? Uh, well, I think uh, we learned our lesson from Iraq. Um, I, I think we have um, at, at, at the Pentagon now we have a manual on how to deal with with asymmetric war. Um, we can win uh, traditional army to army wars, uh, but what happened in Iraq was that our army was dealing with invisible people, you know, civilians shooting at you from behind houses, and and this was new at the time. But we have many. Since then, we've had many people who've who've observed this, who've written manuals, and now we know how to deal with with non-state actors. Non-state actors are, are the ones like Soleimani. Um, they are they wage asymmetric wars on us. Um, for instance, the attack that killed um, a U.S. soldier, or a U.S. contractor, excuse me, uh, a week before we took out Soleimani. Um, this attack was never claimed. Um, the, the pro-Iranian militias, even though we, we are sure that they launched the attack, they never claimed it. They tried to pretend as if it was ISIS that, that launched the missiles on the U.S. base. So the asymmetric wars depend on fighters being invisible. And by now we have enough experience to know that what we need is that we have to have a small core of special forces leveraged by local allies, keep our forces in the bases, Train the allies, let the allies do the, you know, the foot soldier work outside the bases. This has worked. It has worked in defeating ISIS, even though ISIS isn't an asymmetric war. ISIS is a militia. It's not an, it's, it's a non-state actor. So it, it, it worked in, with ISIS. I think it will work if we have to deal with the pro-Iran militias. And, uh, and this is, and, and especially with, with Soleimani, you know, the, the mastermind being taken out. Uh, so I think, from now on, we should stop worrying of, you know, and, and being scared of asymmetric war as if this is some sort of magic that only the Iranians can can wage against us. If they do, I think, you know, we have ways of, of dealing with them uh, with, with these kind of kinds of war. Right. Absolutely. Um, the, the United States has uh, probably the best capacity to conduct asymmetric warfare in, in the world, really, with. Uh, the capabilities of our special operations forces, um, as you alluded to. So let, let's close it out with this. Um, the mainstream media here in the U.S., I mean, just continually seems to be striking out on this whole situation as far as not 
pushing Iranian government-backed propaganda uh, into the United States. Um, I think it was just last night or the night before, um, there was an Iranian news reporter who apologized on air on an Iranian state-run news uh, broadcast. She apologized for lying to the Iranian people for years, and she quit on the air. I'm not seeing any of this being reported on mainstream media, but I'm seeing it from Iranian uh, Iranians on Twitter and Iranian journalists who live outside of Iran, and, and they're the ones who are um, promoting a lot of this. Uh, and, and this is also how I, I found you on Twitter, and I just feel like the best sources for this really are on Twitter, and it's not from the mainstream media. Do you think this, this uh, sort of phenomenon is something as simple as they just hate Trump, or like what is going on here? Uh, well, I think it's partially partisanship, including hating Trump. And the other part is that um, uh, also it's also partisan. But um, if if you are like me and I watch MSNBC most of the time and whenever they're talking about Iran, there are four guests that they have on all the time. And I know them. I know their arguments. And Susan Rice, Ben Rhodes, um, Joe, uh, the guy from Plowshare uh, Funds. And, uh, you know, just like probably Trita Parsi, who's was like a, an Iranian lobbyist in town. Anyway, I'm not here to slander anyone. Just saying, there's, I mean, the, they never get anyone to challenge their own points. The the problem with with mainstream media is that now they're designed as echo chambers in such a way that they put out a point and they never get anyone to to challenge it. And I've you know I've been wishing for years now. Just I'm just thinking you know there might be a day when they get me on and and I'll challenge them. And, you know, like you were saying, there are many Iranian journalists who, who, who said we're sorry. But look, uh, the mainstream media got it all wrong. They said we'll, be, we'll go to war with Iran. We didn't. They said that the Iranians love Soleimani. They, you know, they don't love clearly Soleimani. They're still protesting against him. Um, they said that uh, uh, the Iraqi parliament uh, asked for that we leave Iraq. This never did never happen. So any self-respecting media outlet would say, we're sorry we had so many calls condensed into one week. But this is not happening, you know. As, as we speak, we see them just reiterating what they've been saying over the past week as if they haven't made any wrong call. So uh, I agree. I think, you know, that the, the way our media has been set up and designed is really flawed. And, you know, and this is turning them into just, just peddling the points that they want out. And that's not really a debate. It's just like, you know, saying what they know and repeating it all day long. Yeah, I think we're now in a time where people all over the world are uh, sort of distrusting authority and questioning everything. And I think that's a good thing. And I think with the Internet uh, now, whereas in previous generations, Whatever the mainstream media told you, whatever was on the front page of the news, that's that was the information you got, unless you had some sort of connections to the country where the news was about, right? Um, so I think it's fantastic that we have the internet where you can get news and information from people who are on the ground in these places. Uh, you know, with the protests in Iran, you have videos and and stories being told by people who are there versus, like you said, the mainstream media where the government of Iran you know, controls all the information going out. Um, so, you know, I want to thank you for coming on here and thank, thank you for your honest reporting and 
perspective on the situation. I think it's fascinating, and I think it's it's very much needed. If anyone wants to follow you, any of my audience wants to keep up with you, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, well, on Twitter, um, my handle is at H-A-H-U-S-S-A-I-N, or they can look up my name, Hussein Abdul Hussein, and uh, that's uh, that's the easiest way. And over there, I um, I post what whatever articles I write, whether in English or in, or in Arabic. Awesome. Again, thank you, brother. I appreciate you coming on here, and I appreciate everything you're doing regarding getting the truth out there for people. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.